Well, good morning again to everyone. Uh, it's good to see you all here. Um, as always, when I get the chance to preach, it gives me great joy. I consider it a privilege, um, and I've grown to really enjoy this privilege over the years. Um, anytime I get to step from over there to over here uh, and do uh, share from the Word of God, uh, it's not something that I take lightly, and so I appreciate uh, your willingness to allow me to do that. Um, it's always a joy, always a joy to be able to share with you from the Word of God. Um, a lot of folks are out traveling today. Uh, I think McNeil's are uh, at the river down near Columbus, and the Holbrooks, I think, are in Pennsylvania at this point, um, hopefully filling up on chocolate um, now around Hershey. Uh, so be praying for them and their travels, that they'll uh, enjoy it and they'll be well-rested. Um, and um, we look forward to seeing everybody when they return. Uh, but in the meantime, you're stuck with me, so uh, so I hope that's okay this morning. Um, and as uh, Tony and I both have already mentioned this morning, um, we are continuing our Vintage Church Core Value Summer Sermon Series uh, today. We did a series like this uh, seven, eight years, eight years ago in 2015, uh, and I know uh, there's couple of you who probably remember that, but most of you weren't around for that. Um, so some of the stuff uh, that we covered then, we're covering again now, but we, you know, we try to emphasize these core values regularly. Um, and if you've been through our new partner classes, if you've joined Vintage Church as, uh, as a partner, well, you know, we use the word partner instead of member here, uh, then you have heard these four core values emphasized, because that's how we kind of shape those uh, partnership classes before people join our church, so they know that we're all, what we're all about. And then you probably hear me, uh, if you're here for the first song, uh, usually I do it then, uh, I try to emphasize at least one of these on, usually around the first Sunday of the month. Um, so we try to keep these regularly in our mind, and now they're even on the front of your bulletin. Uh, it says them right under the Vintage Church logo there. So, um, so we try to emphasize those, but we thought this summer it would be beneficial for us as a church to dive a little more in depth into our four core values. Um, because we as a leadership team truly believe that God's people are called to think biblically. We believe that we're called to worship passionately, that we're called to live missionally, and we're called to flourish relationally. Um, so these four core values, they are not meant to be like a marketing ploy, you know, just, just like a tagline, you know, like everybody has that, you know, eat fresh or whatever, you know, we're not, it's not that. I don't know why that was the one that came to mind. Um, I guess I need some Subway for lunch. Um, but they are not meant to be like a marketing tool or, or sort of meaningless buzzword nonsense. Um, these four core values are meant to be a simple but thorough summary of what we long to be as God's people and specifically as this local expression of God's people that we call Vintage Church. Um, I think of our four core values really as more aspirations than descriptions because we, none of us do these things perfectly, right? But they are what we aspire to be as God's people. And we hope uh, that as Vintage Church continues year after year, you know, we're over a decade into this thing, um, that these values become not just something that we have listed on our website, uh, something that, you know, is now on the bulletin, uh, something that you can just regurgitate if asked. Um, we hope that they become more and more foundational principles that describe us as a community of Christ followers because all of these are biblical principles, and I think when we get these things right, uh, we get a lot right as God's people. 
Um, they are not cherry-picked Christianese slogans. They are completely biblical principles that we aspire to as God's people. And so our, it's our hope that through this series this summer that you come to treasure these biblical values. And that hopefully as a result of what you hear, which we hope this all the time, no matter what's, uh, what we're preaching through, but we hope that God, by his Holy Spirit's sanctifying power that's at work in each each one of us, if we belong to Christ, that he will increasingly make these not just like our vintage church core values, but values that we care about and that we live out as the people of God. So we've been in this for a few weeks now. Bryce introduced our uh, summer sermon series on vintage values uh, three weeks ago, and he talked about what it means to think biblically. And specifically, um, he talked about how we can best do that when we read Scripture exegetically, right? When we exercise exegesis, when we read Scripture, letting Scripture say what it says and not imposing onto it what we want it to say. Then uh, Tony preached for us on week two um, about what it means to live missionally and specifically how that begins in the home with our families. Um, and he talked about as we do that best as we biblically discipline and share the gospel with our children or with those who are closest to us. And then last week, Stephen talked about our core value of flourishing relationally. And he talked about how that's related to discipleship and how discipleship really is the foundation of what it means to flourish relationally. And then it gives me great joy to hit core value number four today, a topic that is near and dear to my heart, looking at what it means to worship passionately. And specifically, I'm going to be taking a look at worship, not so much in the context of what we do when we gather for a worship service, but worship as an everyday lifestyle, worshiping in every moment. And just a little preview for you, uh, if you're keeping track here, that's all four core values we hit we think biblically, live missionally, we flourish relationally, and worship passionately. And then we're going to do all four of those again, but kind of from it through a different lens. And they're going to be slightly out of order uh, the second go-round. So just a preview of what you have coming up over the next four weeks. Uh, next week, guest preacher uh, Vlad. Hang on. My brother told me how to say his last name. Uh, what's Vlad's last name? Uh Baranuk, Vlad Baranuk uh, from Longview Hikes is going to preach for us uh, next week about living missionally and specifically about having a global mindset uh, when it comes to evangelism. And then the week after that, we're going to return uh, to the idea of thinking biblically. I get to preach that sermon, and I'm going to talk to you about how we can interact as God's people who think biblically in a biblically illiterate world and actually an increasingly biblically hostile world. And then the week after that, uh, Stephen is going to preach uh, again on worshiping passionately, but he's going to look at worshiping passionately specifically for what that means in corporate worship when we gather. And he's going to break down the different expressions of worship that we do when we get together on Sunday mornings and at other times. And then finally, I guess three weeks from now, yeah, Bryce is going to preach the final sermon of this series on flourishing relationally, and he's going to talk about how we utilize the gifts of the Spirit to operate in the context of the local church, and that's how we flourish relationally. Uh, so it's going to be a great series. Uh, we're not even halfway done. We'll be halfway done after this one today. Uh, so I hope that you'll keep coming and you'll stick around for it, and I hope that this is nourishing and, and uh, helpful for you as we grow uh, in the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. So back to what I'm doing today. Today, we are talking about what it means 
to be a passionate worshiper. And in a broad sense, right, a lifestyle of worship, worshiping in every moment, living each moment in light of the grace of Jesus, as we sang earlier, that song that Stephen wrote from Ecclesiastes. You hear this word worship a lot if you are in or around churches, and you've probably heard that word a lot for a long time. Um, I'm not sure if it's a word we think about that often. It's just one of those words that we use. Um, it's a common word in the Christian vernacular, especially in churches that are uh, maybe a little bit less traditional. Uh, worship often is like a buzzword. We talk about styles of worship. We have worship services uh, where we engage in acts of worship. We, know, we even have worship leaders. That sort of supplanted the music minister title, right? Uh, my, I even have the honor at Vintage of serving as the worship pastor. What does that mean? What are we talking about when we use this word, this very Christianese word, worship? What is worship? What does it mean? Well, simply, worship is attributing worth to something. Worship is prizing something as valuable, both in the affection of our hearts, but also in the way that we respond to that affection. So worship is both in our heart and the external expression of it. That means you and I are worshipers, but even before we come to Christ, we are worshipers. In fact, we are worshipers by default. The natural disposition of the human heart is to worship. And whether we realize it or not, we are always worshiping. But when I say that we are worshipers by default, I'm not saying we are worshipers of God by default. In fact, we know that apart from Christ, we cannot really honor God with our lives. But we are worshipers by default. The problem is that we are always attributing worth to something, but left on our own, we worship anything but God. But make no mistake, we still worship. We still attribute worth by the things that we do, by the affections of our hearts, by the words that we say. Left on our own, we are still worshipers, but we worship anything but God. But we are attributing worth to something with our choices, with our words, with our money, with our time, with our actions. We are attributing worth to something no matter if we are far from God or near to him. Matt Papa said that worship is not merely a lifestyle choice. We cannot not worship, he says. We never begin worship. We aim it. The crucial question is, what do you worship? John Calvin wrote that we should consider it the great end of our existence to be found numbered among the worshipers of God. Now, I hope that we can agree with Calvin that if we are Christians, we should desire as the great purpose of our existence to be worshipers of God, to attribute worth to God, to adore Him above everything else. But how do we do that? If we know what worship is, we know that we are always worshiping something, how do we attribute worth to God above everything else? How do we become passionate worshipers of the one true God in every moment of our lives? As I mentioned, it's not merely through what we do when we gather, these religious expressions. Now, these are good things. In fact, these are things that I've, I deeply, deeply love. In fact, uh, for the past over 20 years, I've been leading worship music, which 
I'm not that old, so I've been doing this since middle school. Uh, well, I guess I'm getting a little old, but um, over 20 years, uh, there, it gives me no greater joy than to see God's people externally expressing adoration to him that he alone is due. So I'm not discounting the value of external expressions of worship because I love them. I love them. I would, do, I would pay you guys to let me do this, and somehow I get paid to, to lead worship. I love it. I don't forget I said that. I still want to get paid, but um, I love it. So I think those external expressions are very important, but they are not the foundation of what true worship is. They are an external expression of what true worship is. So let's look at the foundation. What is true worship? Jesus said in Matthew 15, 8 and 9, uh, speaking of the Pharisees, he says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. So Jesus is saying it is possible and in fact often likely to do the external religious expression to worship God with our lips and then commit an act of vanity at the same time of useless worship, of vain worship. Because worship, according to Jesus, is first an issue of the heart. It's not primarily about what we do with our lips. It is about where our heart is. John Piper said that the inner essence of worship is to know God truly and then respond from the heart to that knowledge by valuing God, treasuring God, prizing God, enjoying God, being satisfied with God above all earthly things. He said, and then that deep, restful, joyful satisfaction in God overflows in demonstrable acts of praise from the lips and demonstrable acts of love in serving others for the sake of Christ. So yes, the praise from the lips and the service from our hands and feet are very important, but they overflow from finding our, our satisfaction in God, in knowing Him truly and responding from that knowledge. So with that in mind, I want to take a look at what's probably a familiar passage of Scripture to you. We spent a lot of time on this when we went through the book of Romans a while back. Um, but I think this is sort of the definitive uh, couple of verses on how the Bible defines worship. So if you have a holy book or holy app or you want to look at the screen up here, turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we're going to read the first two verses. They say this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray before we jump into this. God, I pray that what Paul pleaded with his brothers would define our lives. God, that we would present our bodies as a living sacrifice. God, that it might be holy and acceptable to you. And that it might be a spiritual act of worship. God, everything that we do, everything that we say, every way that we spend our time and our money, Lord, we know that it all tells uh, you and tells us and tells those around us what we value. 
God, I pray that all of those things would show that we value you and your glory above all else. God, that we would realize we do not begin worship, we aim worship. So Lord, may we increasingly aim our worship toward you. As your Holy Spirit renews our minds, Lord, as we reject being conformed to the patterns of the world, would you increasingly allow us to live every moment in light of the grace of Jesus. Lord, that we would not waste our lives. Lord, for we know if we were living for anything but your glory, we are doing that. We are wasting it. We don't want to. Lord, make our moments matter. Or teach us to live by the power of your spirit. And whether we drink or whether we eat or no matter what we do, Lord, help us to do it all for your glory. God, would you help us to understand your word, Lord, and with the, your Holy Spirit as he renews our minds, help it to transform our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I mentioned this earlier, and Stephen talked about this a little bit last week, but it can be very easy for us to try to compartmentalize our lives. Um, Stephen talked about it related to discipleship, but I think it bears repeating when we're talking about worship. For the Christian, life cannot be divided between our church life and our regular life, our, our sacred life and our secular life, because there is no such division revealed to us in Scripture. There is no such thing as the church life and the regular life for someone who truly trusts in Christ. Because when we discuss what it means to think biblically, to live missionally, to flourish relationally, and to worship passionately, we're not simply describing how we ought to act when we get together. We're describing how we should live every moment of every day. If Jesus is Lord of your life, he is not Lord of an hour and a half on Sunday. He is Lord 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every moment. So in Romans 12, Paul doesn't primarily define worship as what we do when we get together as a church, but he defines it by how we live. Worship of God, then, is not something that we do sometimes, but it's something we're called to do all of the time. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And I know there's some context around that. He's talking about meat sacrifice to idols and all that, but... Eating and drinking are not typically things that we think of as acts of worship. But those mundane, necessary things that you and I have to do to survive, even that, even the tiniest pieces of our lives are meant to be acts of worship. We should wake up in the morning and go to bed at night as an act of worship. We should go to work and we should care for our families as an act of worship. We should enjoy rest as an act of worship. We should go on vacation as an act of worship. Every moment of our lives from the minuscule, mundane, everyday tasks that we don't even think about to those grand celebratory events of our lives, all of it should glorify God for all of it should be an act of worship. So how does that happen? If we believe that, if we want to make our lives into a living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable to God, how do we learn to be people who give God glory in every aspect of our lives as passionate worshipers in every moment? As Piper said, the inner essence of worship is to know God truly. And so I believe that 
First, worship must begin with seeing who God is. Our first point today is that the passionate worship arises from seeing the beauty of God. Now, worship, we know, involves us. But worship is not about us, so it shouldn't start with us. It should start with God. So like so many things received, revealed to us in Scripture, the creation of the universe, the initiation for salvation, uh, the way that we are restored in Christ, all of those things begin with God. So in order to properly understand what worship is and how we can become passionate worshipers, we need to know God. We need to see his beauty. And so to do that, if you're still turned to Romans 12, back up to the end of Romans chapter 11. I don't have this one on the screen, so hope I'll read it to you. But if you have a copy, you can see this a little bit better. Now, I know you know this, but the original manuscripts of Scripture were not divided into chapters and verses, right? So Paul wrote this letter, this epistle to the church in Rome, and it was a letter. Maybe it had paragraphs. I don't know if they indented in Greek or whatever, um, but it's a, it's a letter. He wrote it as a letter, and we have it divided up into chapters and verses so we can say turn to chapter 12 and we know where we are. Paul didn't do that. that was, that's just a convenience for us, right? It's arbitrary to some, you know, to some extent. So chapter 11 reads, leads right into chapter 12. It's not two different things. It's one letter. And Paul's letter to the Romans, like I said, would have gone right out of chapter 11 into chapter 12. So let's back up a little bit to the end of chapter 11 and see what Paul is saying before he gets to this, I appeal, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, in Romans 12.1. Uh, 12, if you start reading in verse 33 of 11, chapter 11, he says, Oh, the depth and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do you see that? Do you see that connection from chapter 11 to chapter 12? He goes right out of, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. There is a direct connection in Paul's writing here between seeing this awesome wonder of the almighty God who created the universe and then responding appropriately in genuine worship of him. That's what happens when we have a real encounter with the living God. The only possible response to that is humble adoration. When we come to see God and to know God for how magnificent he truly is, the affections of our heart are moved to give him the glory that he is due. We see this over and over again throughout scripture, but one of the clearest examples, also probably familiar to you, is in Isaiah 6. And the prophet Isaiah has a very real encounter with God in his throne room. It's a little bit lengthy. I want to read it to you, though, because the same thing happens. He encounters the glory of God, and watch for his response. Isaiah 6 says this. 
in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw, and this is Isaiah speaking, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, Paul's, we sang about seraphim earlier, that's a type of angel in the Bible, They're, so if you didn't know what that was, seraphim and sher, cherubim and seraphim and holy, 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 those are uh, different types of angel in the Bible. Back to the verses. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. See, like Isaiah, like Paul, like so many in Scripture and so many who have come to see the glory of God throughout the church's history, when we catch a glimpse of the glorious holy God whom we worship, we cannot help but respond to that. And the first thing that we often see is our own depravity. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. We see our desperate need for his saving grace because we see him for who he is as magnificent and holy. Church, the only way that we will become genuine, passionate worshipers is by first seeing God for who he is, with seeing his awe-inspiring beauty. And when we do that, when we, when we come to see God clearly, then we can respond in worship. So how do we see the glory of God? I don't, most of us are not going to get uh, an encounter in the throne room of, you know, this vision that, that Isaiah had or that, that John had on Patmos um, in Revelation when he describes a very similar scene and they say the same thing, holy, holy, holy. Most of us aren't going to have that vision, but I think there are a couple of ways that we can encounter the awe-inspiring beauty of the almighty and holy creator of the cosmos. Um, there's a lot of ways that we can see the glory of God. I think the easiest, perhaps the most natural way, is simply to look at what God has made, to see his glory through his creation. That's the first uh, sub-point today. God's beauty is revealed through his creation. Again, Paul in Romans uh, in chapter 1 said this about God's uh, natural or general revelation. He said, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The psalmist uh, said similarly, he said in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. 
So when you and I look at the things that God have ma- has made, when we see the, the spectrum of colors in the sunset, when we see the intricate perfection that is a newborn child, when we see the countless stars at night in the summer sky, may we be in awe of the God who spoke and the universe came into existence. May our minds get lost in the wonder of his creative prowess because seeing the beauty of the creator from the things that he has created Uh, is how God intended to reveal himself to us first. That's what we call general revelation. And there's a lot to be uh, adored about God for when you look at the beauty of what he has made. But that's not enough. Because we can't fully know God just by looking at the beauty of what he has made. We can't see glimpses of his glory, but we can't truly know him through general revelation. That's why we have to spread the gospel. Because everybody can see the stars and the ocean and the mountains, And they know in their heart there is a God, but we have to tell them who that is. And the reason we know who that is is because God has given us his word. God has revealed himself through general revelation, but he's also revealed himself more clearly through special revelation, through the Bible. That's the second sub-point today. God's beauty is revealed through his word. If you want to learn what it means to be a passionate worshiper, if that's an aspiration of your life, and I hope because you're here that that is true of you, immerse yourself in the Bible. Because that's how God has directly revealed himself and his will to us. And when we do that, when we immerse ourselves in the Bible, when we learn to think biblically, the Holy Spirit will transform us. Do you realize we have the full counsel at the wor- uh, of the Word of God that's available usually at our fingertips all the time? We have more access to God's full counsel than anybody in the history of the world, anybody who has ever lived. And we're probably also most prone to ignore it because it's so easy to find. I got the whole thing right here and right here. I mean, it's, I got it everywhere. If you want to become a passionate worshiper, immerse yourself in the word of God. Because you can't worship a God that you don't know. And God has revealed himself to you in his word. We simply have to seek him by reading the word that he has revealed to us. If we want to treasure God, if we want to know God, if we want to worship God, we have to treasure his word. And treasuring something, I shouldn't have to tell you, means intentionally Spending time with it. Devoting time to it. Now I know we all have busy lives. I know this. I know this. I know uh, that if you don't have a regular habit of spending time in the word of God, it can be kind of daunting to try to start one. Something that I experienced in the past is I would bite off more than I could chew. And then I would get discouraged and I would quit. Don't do that. Don't do that. I mean, you brush your teeth every day even if you don't have time to floss and do mouthwash, right? Because you don't, if you don't, your teeth are going to fall out. So even if you get five minutes to spend in the Word of God, do that. The Word of God is the Word of life. Second Timothy says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. There is nothing more necessary for our spiritual growth, church, then for our healthy relationships, for our anxious minds, for every area of our lives, than a regular diet of God's word. So if that isn't part of your life, I'm not chastising you. I'm begging you, get to know the word of God. 
create a habit that is sustainable for you, that fits in your daily flow, that, that is joyful for you, devoting even a few minutes each day to seeking God in his word is the best way and perhaps the only way to reorient the affections of our hearts toward God and to become passionate worshipers of him. Even a little bit of scripture, as often as possible, is an excellent start. Because the God who saves us by his grace, who sanctifies us by his spirit, he primarily does that through the timeless, life-transforming power of his word. So, I've said it a bunch of times, but don't miss it. If you want to get to know God and become a passionate worshiper of him, we have to spend time, regular time, getting to know him through his word. And when we do that, when we immerse ourselves in the word of God, when we try to wrap our minds around his amazing and wonderful truth that he has revealed to us in his word, we will inevitably grow to love God and to adore him more. When we look at how God has specifically revealed himself to us, we will become worshipers of the one true and living God. So we see that worship starts with knowing God as he has revealed himself, both in creation and in his word. That we have to see God for who he is in order to respond. But the second thing is, it requires a response. Worship starts in the heart, but it requires a response. And so the second main thing I want you to see today is that passionate worship is a surrender of all of yourself to God. Romans 12, uh, verse, the second half of verse 1 Paul begs us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Living sacrifice. We're going to return to that one in a minute. Just put a pin in it. Now, I've offered this illustration before, so if you've heard it, um, sorry, I recycle. Um, but let's, you can raise your hands if you want to. Um, who knows an Elvis song? Elvis Presley. Who knows a song by Elvis? Okay. Um, if we had an Elvis Presley karaoke night, which I'm not opposed to, um, is there one song that you could sing? Not that you would sing, but that you could sing, maybe. You know it well enough maybe to sing Elvis karaoke, maybe. Okay. Um, who has been to Graceland before? I didn't go to a high school. I highly recommend it. It's a good, good experience. Um, who owns uh, an Elvis record or some piece of Elvis memorabilia, some sort of Elvis product? I have an Elvis gospel record. It's cool. My little brother got it for me. Okay. So even if all those things are true of you, um, you know an Elvis song. Maybe you could sing an Elvis song. You've been to Elvis's house. You own some stuff related to Elvis. That doesn't make you an Elvis worshiper, right? I mean, you know, Elvis is cool. We're, we live five minutes from Memphis. But that doesn't make you a worshiper. But have you ever met somebody who is an Elvis worshiper? Because I have. Um, those people are strange, right? Though they check those four boxes like every morning um, and many more. These are people who show up to the candlelight vigil at Graceland every year uh, to remember uh, Elvis's death. And then they cry like he just died again, which is weird. Um, you can hardly have a conversation with these people because they always want to talk about Elvis. And they'll often travel the globe to see every little piece of Elvis memorabilia they can find. These people are odd. They're a little weird. They, those people are Elvis worshipers because they are totally sold out on this idea that Elvis is the greatest. And that they need to tell everybody that Elvis is the greatest. Now, returning to scripture, uh, 
biblical scholars who read the original Greek will tell you that the most common New Testament word that we translate in the English as worship is proskuneo. Excuse me, proskuneo. Man, Drew's not here to correct me on that. Proskuneo. That word literally means to come toward, to kiss. And that's what the Elvis worshipers do. They come toward to kiss, right? They genuinely worship this man. Now, we can agree, as God's people, that's idolatry. That worshiping Elvis Presley, cool as he was, that's foolish. Normal people might have visited his house. They might sing his songs. They might own stuff with his name on it. That's not worshiping him. But I wonder why we can call ourselves worshipers of God simply because we visit his house and we sing his songs and we own stuff with his name on it. I believe that Romans 12 gives us a more complete, holistic definition of worship. Verse 1 tells us that spiritual worship is to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. It's not merely to present our songs and our instruments and our raised hands our best melodies, as important as those things are, and as much as I love those things, it says to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. The biblical definition of worship goes far beyond the corporate gathering. It says that worship is total surrender. How do we become living sacrifices then? How do we give all of ourselves in worship? Verse 2 gives us two steps. The first, point A, is that we are called to not be conformed to this world. Now, we know that when Scripture talks about the world in a context like this, it's usually referring to our sinful desires, right? The the patterns of the world, the way that we do things apart from God, our sinful tendencies. So when Paul tells us, do not be conformed to this world, he's saying, reject sin. Repent and reject sin. Now, how does that relate to worship? We don't, I don't know if we always relate those things together. We think of worship as one thing and repentance as another, but you can't separate the three biblically. What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? It's really a strange term that Paul uses. It's an oxymoron. Now, we may not think of it so much because we use the word sacrifice in all kinds of different contexts, right? I sacrificed the leftover ice cream for my children. I sacrificed my Saturday to go serve the poor in a soup kitchen. Um, The Jews who read Paul's letter would have understood, they would have had a different understanding of the word sacrifice, right? Because for the Jew, a sacrifice was an animal slaughtered upon the altar as an act of worship to God. They knew what a sacrifice was, and it was a messy affair. A sacrifice, by definition, was slaughtered. So to call something a living sacrifice, that would have been a paradox for Paul's original readers. The first century Jew who had come to faith in Christ would have understood a sacrifice dies. That it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. So in order to be this living sacrifice, this paradox that Paul calls us to, we have to reject the foolish worship that the world calls us to. Not being conformed to this world means refusing to treasure and to find true satisfaction in anything that this world has to offer. As we were reminded by Solomon over and over again when we went through the book of Ecclesiastes a while back, when we seek our treasure in the things of this world, it is vanity. It is chasing after the wind. Even the good things of this life can become objects of vain worship, of chasing after the wind. 
I mean, we should desire to find joy in the good things that God has given us in our families, in our work, even in this church. But when those things become the object of our worship, we are conforming ourselves to worldly worship. C.S. Lewis, in his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory, spoke of how foolishly we are to make dumb idols of beautiful things. This is kind of a long quote from C.S. Lewis, but listen to it. He said, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust it to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only a scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. Indeed, the idols that you and I are so easily, we so easily create, they will break the hearts of their worshipers because we can't find fulfillment in them. We were created not to worship the things of the world, but to worship the God who made the world. So surrender of our sinful desires, not being conformed to this world, is the first practical step toward becoming a passionate worshiper of God. But not only does Romans 12 tell us to not be conformed, it then tells us be transformed. Second point is be transformed by the renewal of your mind. See, surrender is not only putting off sin, although we have to do that, but when we repent, we turn away from sin and we turn toward God. It's a 180-degree turn. It's putting on a Holy Spirit renewed mind. And if you're a Christian, that is not something that just happens one time. It's part of this ongoing process of sanctification in the lives of believers. Martin Luther said that the Christian life is all repentance or something to that effect. As we grow in the knowledge and wisdom of the Word of God, as we continually reject sin and we surrender our thoughts to the Holy Spirit within us, our minds are then renewed by the Holy Spirit. What happens when we do that is we begin to see the world through the lens of the gospel. We begin to view the people around us as people created in the image of God with eternal souls who without God are desperately wicked and hopeless without the knowledge of his saving grace, offered through the death and resurrection of his son. The spirit-transformed mind that is continually being renewed will begin to see the sovereign and gracious purposes of God being worked out through the mundane and even through tragic circumstances in this life. The spirit-transformed mind realizes that it is only when we worship through every part of our lives, the only one who is worthy of that worship that the longings of our soul are fulfilled in him and by him and through him. Should not every aspect of our lives be an act of worship if we are commanded then to be a living sacrifice? Westminster Catechism says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Or John Piper revised it, to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Worship is not simply a good idea. Worship is the reason that you and I were created. And so the central question for us is this. Is your life an act of worship? 
Are you being transformed by the renewal of your mind and offering yourself as a living sacrifice to God daily? That doesn't mean are you do you not do you have to repent of sin sometimes and do you not struggle with things? But are you continually being transformed? Are you offering your life as a living sacrifice? I've shared this before too, but um, it's always I noticed this a long time ago, and it just kind of impressed on my heart. So I want to share it with you. In Acts chapter 18, um, we read about Paul's travels preaching the gospel. And there is this character that's insignificant that you'll miss uh, when you're reading over it. Um, but I think there's something profound mentioned about this guy in Acts 18.7. It says that Paul left wherever he was there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. That's it. That's it. You're not going to get a whole uh, exegetical sermon. And I don't want to read more into this than is there. But we have this guy, Titius Justus. And this seemingly insignificant dude who is mentioned nowhere else in Scripture, he let Paul sleep on his couch one night. We have no record that he preached or that he wrote or that he taught or anything, that he did anything else. But... The sole act of Titius Justice that's recorded in history is that he gave the Apostle Paul a place to stay one night. But Scripture says he was a worshiper of God. The only reason this guy, this Titius Justice, is remembered, he's preserved throughout time in the counsel of the Word of God is because he was a worshiper of God. The Bible doesn't say that he sang worship songs, that he started new churches, that he had a mega ministry, anything like that. But we know... He served the people of God because he gave the Apostle Paul a place to stay. And Scripture says he was a worshiper of God. Isn't that an incredible epitaph? Like, y'all can leave my name off my tombstone if it just says that, that I'm a worshiper of God. When people remember us, what will be our legacy? What will be our epitaph? I hope that above all else, we are remembered like that, that we are remembered as worshipers of God. Not because we had a great resume or great education or or whatever else that the world has to offer, but because we spent our lives for the cause of Christ. Worship has to be, for God's people, worship has to be more than a religious act. In fact, when Stephen talks to us in a few weeks about corporate worship, all of that is meaningless if our lives don't reflect hearts of genuine worshipers. When God spoke to the prophet Amos in Amos chapter 5, God said, I hate, I despise your feast, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Now all those things that God's saying he will reject were things God commanded them to do. And he's saying they are not enough. Then he says, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. See, may we not be like those Israelites who offered sacrifices to God in vain. May we not play religion games. Jesus came to set us free from empty, meaningless religion that is just with our lips. Jesus doesn't want just our religious works. He wants our hearts It should overflow into those things, yes, but that's not all he wants. He wants us. He wants us to offer our souls and our bodies as a living sacrifice, which is, Paul says, our spiritual act of worship. 
Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4 that the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Church, the Father is seeking worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. Worshipers who realize that we were created to find our deepest joy and satisfaction in God alone. So may the affections of our hearts be increasingly moved toward God as we seek to worship Him in spirit and in truth in every moment of our lives. And as we seek to do that, as as we seek to become passionate worshipers, May we continually reject being conformed to the world. But let, may we let the Holy Spirit renew our minds so that whether we drink, whether we eat, whatever we do, may we do it all for the glory of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you created us to worship. God, we know that on our own, we still worship, but we worship everything else. We are so, our, our hearts are idol factories. God, we can even make the good stuff that you've given us into idols. God, we don't want to do that though. We know that we were created to know you. To glorify you by enjoying you forever. God, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us and the things that you have made. God, that we, we can see just by looking around your glory. Lord, and it should cause us to adore you. God, but even more than that, we know uh, we can see you clearly in your word. Lord, for you have revealed yourself clearly to us in it, Lord. And it is in your word that we find out what you have done for us through your son, the image of the invisible God. God, I pray that you would increasingly move our hearts. Lord, that you would... Uh, cause the affections of our hearts to be stirred that, that we cannot find satisfaction apart from you. Lord, that we would treasure and prize you above all else. Lord, that the good things that you have given us would not be distractions from your glory, but they may lead us back to you and help us to be uh, filled with gratitude for what you have done. God, I thank you for the external acts of worship that we get to participate in together, Lord, that you have indeed called us to. God, but may we not be like the Pharisees that Jesus condemned, Lord, who worship you with their lips, but their hearts were far from you. God, as much joy as it gives me to be here and to sing songs to you and to take communion together and to pray together and to hear from your word together, God, we know that it is all a religious game if our hearts are far from you. So God, bring our hearts close Lord, we know that uh, when we draw near to you, you draw near to us, Lord. So I pray that you would do that, that you would make us long for you, and God, that you would make every moment of our lives matter. God, as we have the chance now to respond to what we've heard from your word and to share in uh, Holy Communion together, would you help us to be uh, filled with gratitude for what you have done to purchase our redemption through your Son? It's in Jesus' name we pray.